In today's Honest Conversation, I am talking with Pastor Paul Darty about his personal struggles with failure, depression, and suicidal thoughts as a Christian. He discusses candidly the struggles that Christians often face with shame and masking emotions when it comes to genuine mental health struggles. He shares his own story of attempting to take his life, how suicide is often misperceived as a selfish tendency, and the importance of community and accountability for mental health healing. Pastor Paul shares his own practical and spiritual ways that he worked through his mental health battles and his story of grief after losing a parent, failure when his ministry was falling apart, and how he moved forward. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to listen to episode 45, Dealing with Depression as a Christian, which is another honest conversation with my stepsister, Tish, and also episode number 115, which is my story, and it is titled, How My Depression Impacts My Life and My Family. Let's jump into today's conversation with Pastor Paul. At the end of our days, we want to be proud of how we spent that day. At the end of our lives, we want to be equally proud of the decisions that we've made. To do this, we need to face the hard. We need to talk it out. We need to lean into community, relatability, and understanding. We need to hear how other people got it together, how they overcame the shame, hurt, toxicity, and past trauma, and chose to move forward but nobody talks about the hard stuff enough. Life is tough and confusing, and yet we try to glide over the struggles like the glaze on a donut and expect to come out unscathed on the other side. We don't deal with the hard, we just keep moving forward, distracting ourselves with scrolling, Netflix binges, and a busy, busy life. But none of us wanna feel like we're drowning or settling in the one life that we've been given, and that's where this show comes in. I long to be a piece of the puzzle that not only extends a hand, but comes alongside of you to live well and to live with joy. On the Living Easy podcast, I dig deep and talk about the things that people are not always comfortable discussing. We talk about the nitty gritty of marriage from living like roommates to the confusion of sex and intimacy. We talk about the reality of losing friendships and the art of making new ones as an adult because let's be honest, it is not always easy. And we explore essential life principles like real forgiveness, making perfect memories in imperfect homes, and how to deepen your relationship with God in a way that genuinely changes how you live and how you love. God has used the Living Easy podcast to touch hearts in nearly every country in this world. I started this journey with just a computer on my lap as a nursing mom. And since that point, I've had the incredible privilege of connecting with millions of people worldwide through my platforms and through my online courses, such as The Wife Project, From Roommates to Soulmates. At the heart of it all, it is people who make my world go round. Relationships matter, and how you feel about your life at the end of your life is of great importance. And that is why I pour my heart into connecting with you. People are everything to me, and I share my own stories of my mess, the hardships, and my big mistakes on this podcast, paired with all of the wisdom and the lessons that I have learned along the way to bring you freedom. So let's be friends, click subscribe, grab your favorite warm beverage, and get cozy. I'm Lindsay Maestas. Welcome to the Living Easy Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Living Easy Podcast. This is Lindsay Maestas, and today I am here with Pastor Paul Doherty. I would say Doherty. (laughs) I naturally want to say Doherty, Paul, but Doherty, he said. So, but I'm so thankful to have you here. And we are going to be talking about mental health. So, you mentioned prior to starting recording that this is your first book. How does it feel for you launching it and kind of putting your thoughts out into the world? Well, it definitely feels uh, vulnerable, 
Like, I just feel like my whole, I share a lot of personal stories in my book. My, my book already is vulnerable, but then putting it out there to see what people are going to say. And if they buy it, review it, if they like it, don't like it. It's very, it's definitely very, uh, it like feels naked. It just feels like, oh my gosh, I just feel very open to everyone's judgments, but so far it's been good. It's, it's been a journey so far. It's only been out for a month, but so far so good. Well, congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment, but also you're right in that you really are giving space for people to almost have opinions of your story. And that's a very strange thing to do because the people in our inner circle, they care about us. They love us. So our story is just part of who we are, but somebody who doesn't know you and then goes to read your story as if it's something that maybe is kind of meant to serve them, which it is but that can be really daunting. It's like you're kind of a shell being cracked open. So I just respect that you did that, but I would love, I know throughout the book, you're talking about mind games and just the way that anxiety and depression can seep in. And then also as a pastor, I really do love that you're speaking so openly about this because I feel that the conversation is being had more, but maybe not enough. So the official title of the book, and I'll link this in show notes, you guys, but it's mind games, winning the battle for your mental and emotional health. Can you talk a little bit about your own story? What is it that caused you to write about this specific topic? Yeah. First off, thanks for having me. I forgot to say that earlier. No, yeah. I kind of ran into it. So no, we're good, but you're welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, well, honored to be on here. And, um, yeah, I like, So growing up, I grew up as a pastor's kid in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Parents started this church before I was born. They started like a Christian school, a Bible college, this amazing um, like soup kitchen, homeless ministry. And then they also started this camp. And so by the time I was born, it was this mega ministry, just thousands of people every week coming to one of those five different like entities. And then um, and then my dad passed suddenly of cancer. And it happened very like shocking. It was like, we found out he had cancer as a family. We found out he had secretly been battling it, not telling any of us for a year. Um, So we find out a year later that he's hiding this from us. And then about six weeks after that, he was gone. And he was one of those pastors that never missed a Sunday um, preaching. So he was always in the pulpit, never really had a guest speaker. And, um, he was just a really good, like hardworking dad, hardworking man and visionary and like had built this ministry debt-free. It was powerful. But when he died, it was like our world came crashing down. I was the youngest of four siblings. And, um, the last thing he did publicly was my wedding. And so two weeks after our wedding, he died. And, and I just remember feeling so like, just crisis of faith. Cause he would always teach on healing and he would teach on God has a good plan for your life and all things work together for good. And God is the healer and he's faithful. And I just felt like none of those things were true when he died. It was like, wait, what? No, I like everything I've been taught just felt like it was crashing. And, and then people started leaving left and right. Thousands of people left the church. My mom stepped in as an interim pastor for a few years And people didn't like the idea of a woman pastoring the church. And she was grieving the loss of her husband. Our church was grieving the loss of their pastor. And I'm grieving the loss of my dad. And I remember in the midst of all of it, it was just so overwhelming. Like, 
I didn't know how to support my mom because I wasn't sure what I thought about everything. And then I didn't know how to really honestly find support for myself because the people that I was counting on and leaning on to be there left. And so there was a lot of feelings of isolation, loneliness, which led to depression and led to these feelings of hopelessness. And, and then all the mind games, the mind games of, I found out a year after my dad died that he had told our board, Paul one day should pastor this church if he feels called to, but he's not ready yet. He needs time. And so the thing he gave me right before he died, he gave me a key to his office. And he was like, hey, if you ever need to use my office, here's the key. As a pastor's kid, we're like free labor. So I had worked my whole yeah. life for free for my parents, setting up chairs, you know, setting up church services, helping with children's church, youth, worship, all that. And then right when I turned 23, I finally got offered a part-time job at the church. I graduated college and I had this one key. So when I found out that he had told our board, hey, Paul, one day should step into this if he feels called to, but he didn't tell me. And then I also didn't feel ready. I didn't feel qualified. Um, and I used to be a janitor at the university where I went to college. I was, I had gotten a job. The only job they had there was like a janitorial job. So I would clean up, you know, rooms and set up tables and chairs. And I had like 30 keys and I wore those keys proudly on my front, like belt buckle. I was one of the janitors was like, look at all my keys. Um, so I like, long story short, when he gave me one key, I was like, dad, I, I had more access and trust as a janitor at my college than I do at my own parents' church. And he was like, why do you want more keys? And I was like, well, I just want access. I, I need to get into rooms. I need to go and like be available. Like, and he was like, whatever, you just need the key I gave you. And then he passed away. I felt locked out of the room of joy. Like I felt like I don't have a key to be joyful. And people who are happy and smiling all the time, I just didn't have that. I was like, I wish I had a key to that room, but I don't. I, my dad didn't give me that key. And then like churches that were thriving and doing great and our church was bleeding and thousands of people had left and our auditorium was getting emptier by the weekend. Our, our church name is Victory. And I didn't feel like I had the key to victory. I was like, I don't have the key to live a life of victory, nor do I have a key to help other people live a life of victory, which is why our church is getting emptier. And I felt so depressed, so discouraged, and so locked out. And what I talk about in the book is that about two or three years after he passed, I hit this really low point where one night my wife and I got into a stupid argument over milk. And um, like she was wanting to buy organic milk. I was buying skim milk, super cheap Walmart, Sam's Choice milk. And she was like, go to Whole Foods and get the get the organic milk. I was like, we can't afford the organic milk. And, you know, we had laid off 120 employees in a matter of a year wow. um, because we couldn't afford to pay people. People were leaving. And so I felt like I felt like the walls were closing in. So the milk argument was more than the milk. It was about it was about the fear of failure. I was like, I'm going to lose this legacy that my dad left behind and I'm going to mess it up and it's all dying and it's over. And I can't afford to buy organic milk and I don't have the keys to our church and I don't have the keys to joy or peace or life or freedom or casting vision or raising money. Like my dad was such a great fundraiser and visionary and and I didn't have it. And uh, I thought we were going to have to shut down the school, the soup kitchen, the 
the college, the camp, like it just was all caving in. Okay. So now you have this grief and it's being kind of stacked upon this feeling of, I assume failure, as you're mentioning, like this is not panning out how we thought. How as a man, and I ask this because I know that there are so many women who listen, whose husbands really struggle with feeling like they're not ever kind of leveling up to what they're meant to be doing or like that their purpose is, is wonky or how did you navigate that grief and that feeling of failure in those moments? Like you're seeing mm-hmm. all this, you can't get the organic milk. You're seeing people leaving. What did that do within you? Like how did, as a man, was that like, what did you feel during that time? I guess Shame. I felt shame. Yeah. You know, like Brene Brown says, like guilt says you're wrong or uh, you did something wrong. Shame says you are wrong. Mm-hmm. Guilt says like you made a mistake. Shame says you are a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I was ashamed mm-hmm. of my lack of ability. I was ashamed of my lack of like measuring up to my dad. I couldn't wear his shoes. And my mom actually saved a pair of my dad's shoes after he died and gave them to me and my brother. And I was like, I'll never feel these. Like, I just don't have, I don't have what it takes. And so I was at that place of like feeling like a failure, a lot of shame, fear, anxiety, depression. I thought our best days are behind us. God's done with the Darty family. God's done with victory. Best days were when he was alive. And depression for me was like walking into a house, finding the door that goes to the basement, Where everyone else is on this floor, I went down to the basement, then found another door in that basement, went a second floor, and then a third. And I was like seven basements below where I should have been. That night of the milk situation, I went walking down the street for miles by myself in like skinny jeans, which is just a terrible like walk. I was like, it's, you know, it was late August. (laughs) Yeah, it was so uncomfortable. And uh, I, but I came across it, a highway overpass and I was watching these trucks drive beneath me and I could almost just feel the devil laughing at me. Like you should just throw it away. Like your life is not valuable. You would be better off. Other people would be better off if you were gone. Someone else could pass to this church better than you. And my mom had just told me that I would be stepping in within the next year. And I just was like, I don't know if there's anything to step into because things are just not where they're where I would hope they would be. And, um, and so I'm, I'm standing on that overpass and I share this in the book that all the mind games you could imagine were just winning in my head against me and against, I think God's purpose and plan. But it felt like, it felt like, you know, the Bible says there's this great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on. And um, Lindsay, I don't know if you've ever had anyone in your life that you were close to pass away, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. There's that yeah. feeling of maybe at some point you can almost like feel their presence praying mm-hmm. for you or cheering you on or saying like, don't give up or don't quit. But I felt like my dad was like cheering me on from heaven. Like, Paul, don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Um, and I almost felt like he was saying, remember the key I gave you. And I I felt this scripture come back to me. You know, the Bible says, train a child up in the way he should go. He will not depart from it. I think I had departed a little bit and, and yet I was still working at a church, but theologically I was losing my faith. And this scripture came back to me. I will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. 
And I just started crying and I pointed in the darkness. I was like, Satan, I rebuke you. I choose to live and I will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. And I just kept saying that scripture over and over. And it felt like it felt like I was getting my heart to beat again. It felt like my brain was switching back on. It felt like I was taking control again of my life. Like something happened that night where I was like, I need to walk back home. I need to go apologize for the milk argument with my wife. And I need to tell her like that, that I am mentally and emotionally not in the best place. And I need to get some counseling and I need to go and meet with like a really good person who understands the mind and emotions and who believes in God. And I found this like Christian um, counselor that really helped speak life into me. And I, first of all, I just really appreciate your willingness to share so openly about suicidal thoughts and your struggles. And I actually was walking my, we have like this little pond. I was walking the pond the other day and somebody had sent an interview over by the actor. I don't know his name, but he plays Jack Reacher in some show. Anyway, he was talking about his struggles with suicide similarly. And I think one thing that is pretty common for people who do not struggle with depression or suicide is to think, how could you ever, and I'm somebody who struggles and has struggled in the past with depression. I speak pretty openly about it, but how could you ever, you have children, you have a wife, you have responsibilities. How could you even consider that? And one of the things I have said in the moments where I'm really struggling is it feels almost like you're doing a favor to the world. Like it's at least in my case, it felt like it was a gift to them if I were gone, because me being kind of how you explain Paul seven basements below is not serving my family. It's harming my family. Me not wanting to get out of bed in the morning is harming my family And so the best thing, and this is the lie that I believed from the enemy is the best thing I could do is leave because then they would be better off. Did you ever feel that? Or what were the lies, I guess, that you were believing in moments when suicide felt like the only option for people who may have never felt that way before? Yeah, no, I felt the same way as you. I think I just really felt like things would be better for everybody if I was gone. And it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't from this place of, I don't care about my kids. I don't care about my wife. I don't care about the church. I did care. I think I cared so much. much. Yeah. Yeah. I cared so much that I honestly was like, I'm, I'm making things worse. Like I, uh, I'm a mess and, and it's maybe better that I'm gone. And, and that is a lie from the enemy, but it's not, it's not like what you said. I think people misunderstand the suicidal tendency or thought from a place of selfishness when it's maybe the opposite. And so it's coming in to help someone from that angle of because you care so much, you should also know that you're so valuable and you're so worthy. Like you're not even on your worst messy day, you're better off still living than you are throwing it away. Had you spoken to your wife about it? You said I needed to go and tell her I was in a bad place. Had you spoken to your wife or anyone up until that point? Or had you kind of just internalized most of it? I had internalized it Hmm. because as a pastor, I felt like I was pastoring our college young adults. And so I would hint at times in a message that we all struggle with not being okay at times. And, but I wasn't fully transparent about that with Oh, an individual. It was like from the stage, I would kind of say like, 
Hey, we all go through moments where we're not feeling it. But I think one thing that I realized even in writing this book is so many people, so many of us, including me, we get really good at like masking our, our emotions and thoughts and, and not wanting to bog people down and also not wanting people to think we're like really dark, you know, that we're in some dark place Mm -hmm. because we don't want them concerned for us or thinking that, you know, we're, I don't know, we have imposter syndrome. And so it's like, we don't want to be a wet blanket. And I think that's a very common feeling one specifically for men, but also a men in a pastoral position. I just can't imagine the pressure that you feel, but, and I'd love for you to speak to this. I have so many thoughts, but one thing is, do you feel that your messages have changed now to where you're speaking more from a place of conviction and inexperience, not that you weren't before, but that you're saying like, Hey, not just like, sometimes we go through this, but like, Hey, here are the depths. And have you seen that it brings freedom to other people? And does it release you from that shame as well? It does. And it, it like writing the book in the vulnerable sense of sharing what I walked through has now given me more courage to talk about it. And I started talking about it really during COVID because I realized so many people, I mean, in 2017, there was like four different pastors that took their life. And that really shook me because I had not openly shared my testimony to our church about the bridge and about the night that I was contemplating throwing it away. And thankfully, I never went back to that bridge, but I didn't talk about it for four years after or six years after it happened because it was back in 2012 and I waited till 2018 after I'd seen four or five pastors take their life and two of them I I knew mm-hmm. and I honestly was really like um I was I was really grieved and convicted and I was like okay I need to share this and I even though I feel like I'm not maybe the most qualified person to talk about this because I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, a licensed counselor. I'm just a pastor. Uh, um, I think I need to share this from the standpoint of I've walked through some of these feelings and thoughts and even stood on the bridge. And when I started sharing it, it became more easier to talk about, mm-hmm. to talk about the shame, the failure. Now I'm at a place where I feel like I can openly talk about it and not feel um, like I'm, you know, for the first time getting it out there. And, um, and one thing that happened, I'll just share this. So I went to the church in 2012 and again, it was still in a really rough place. Um, all of it was just not, nothing had changed since the bridge moment, but something had changed in my mind. And, you know, when, when you change on the inside, eventually you start changing on the outside. And one night I was outside our church. I couldn't get in because I didn't have the keys to get into the outdoor building. I call a security guard and I was like, hey, could you come and unlock the door? He was like, hey, I'm locking up doors on the other side of town at our um, dream center, like our you know soup kitchen thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's going to be an hour before I get there. So I start trying to break into the church building and I try to shimmy my credit card between the cracks of the doors, pick the lock. Nothing's working. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through my car keys, my mom's house key, my wife and I's house key, and just see if any of these keys will work to try to like shove in there, wiggle around and yank the door. I finally tried this office key my dad had given me right before he passed and it fit perfectly. And I was like, that's weird. And I turned the key and it unlocks this outside door to our main campus. And I was like, 
what just happened? And I remember just thinking like, did God just morph my key? Did he change my key? <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, I wonder if this key works on more doors. And mm -hmm. so I ran inside, I tried it on the choir room. It unlocks the choir room. I tried it on the drum closet. It unlocks the drum closet. I tried it on our pastoral offices. It unlocked those. And then I went to this auditorium and my dad had built a 5,000 seat auditorium right before he died, which was such a blow to our house, our church, because he built it by faith thinking thousands of people are going to come here. And then he passed away and thousands of people left. And it was just this big room that I was so intimidated by. So I thought, okay, if this key works on this door, then maybe, maybe God's not finished with the Darty family. Maybe God's not finished with me. And maybe our best days aren't behind us. And I stuck it in there and I unlocked the door and I sat in the room and I just cried. And I was like, this whole time I've had the master key to victory. Mm -hmm. And I could almost see my dad in heaven, like laughing, like, duh, like you had it the whole time. But he wanted me to discover that for myself instead of mm -hmm. telling me. Um, and so I preached to an empty room that night and I preached a message of hope. And I said, I'm not the only one with the master key. Every believer in Christ has the master key to victory. And I stuck the key in the Bible and I read Colossians 1 it says Christ in you is the hope of glory. And I was like, Lord, I wonder if like Christ in me, the revelation that Jesus lives inside me is the master key to peace. Like if he says I can have peace, maybe I can have peace. If he says I can have freedom from racing thoughts and anxiety and panic attacks, then maybe I can have that. Like maybe that room is not just for a few people. Maybe that room is accessible to people who have struggles with this. And maybe I can get out of the room of shame and step into the room of freedom from shame and forgiveness and healing and a self, uh, like a healthy self image, a healthy God image, a healthy image of myself. And so anyways, something started shifting. And through that, I share in the book, God ended up helping our church and the school and all the things now are in a very healthy place. Mm -hmm. But it started with renewing my mind. And it started with really like, allowing God to go into those rooms that were dark. I think about that movie, Beauty and the Beast, how the beast has this one room that he doesn't want Belle to come mm -hmm. into. He's like, you can't go in that room. It's the forbidden room, the West Wing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and, and yet that's the room where he holds his deepest shame and regret that he was a jerk and that he yeah. lost. Those pedals are, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right? I uh, so anyways, I just think at the end of the day, there are rooms sometimes we don't want God to come into in our minds and hearts from the wounds of family and friends. Mm -hmm. And there's a chapter in that book about trauma. I didn't realize how much a childhood experience was affecting my behavior as a 35-year-old man. I didn't realize that I was pushing people away because of something that happened when I was six. And so I think a lot of things we deal with as adults go back to things we didn't really confront or get healed of when we were kids and teenagers. Mm -hmm. Anyways. No, no. Anyway, that's, it's really empowering and encouraging. And I love you do very well in speaking kind of with analogies. And so it's very relatable and, and implementable, which I think is so refreshing and helpful, especially in conversations about this. And I'm curious, cause you mentioned having those separate rooms and that God, like we can allow God into those rooms. What are some ways 
that you have found in the depression and the anxiety? How have you practically found ways to not put God in a box and to maybe allow him into that anxiety? And how do you process it? It's kind of a twofold question. So one, how do you allow God into that anxiety and depression? And then secondly, what do you do if you feel that God is not responding or is not doing what you think he should be doing in that moment? Yeah, no, that's good. I think for me, it's prayer, it's worship, it's being honest with God. Like just, I think it's knowing that God doesn't abandon us in our most miserable state, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think believing that he's there, he's close to the brokenhearted, he's close to, you know, those who are battling depression, anxiety, fear, panic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I invite him in, in those moments in prayer. I'm like, God, I'm really, I'm really discouraged right now. Like I'm really concerned. I'm overwhelmed. I need you, Lord. I like to go to the piano. I'm a musician. So I'll go sit at the piano and I'll, I'll like play for a little bit and then I'll pray for a little bit and then I'll sing. And sometimes I'll read a Psalm and I'll just be like, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. I mm-hmm. shall not want, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And something in that helps me overcome the anxiety. It doesn't make the circumstance disappear. But like even today, even today, like something popped up that just could have stirred anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I literally just was like, God, I give that to you. I give it to you. I did call a friend. I called a close friend and I just said, hey, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And they were like, hey, you did the right thing. And And so I think sometimes we are triggered by, I don't know, something on social media or TV or the news, or even like the shooting that happened at Lakewood last week or whenever this airs, um, shootings that we see, all these things can trigger anxiety, fear about our kids, fear about our own lives, or like financial stuff like the economy or relational things, things about relationships that can stir up anxiety. And I think in those moments, For me, I go to God in prayer and worship, pick up the piano or the guitar, call a friend or call a counselor. I've got, you know, two or three people that I rotate a call and just say, hey, I'm I'm feeling these feelings. I'm thinking these things. Tell me what I need to do. And somewhere in the midst of all of those combinations is the answer Mm -hmm. and the peace, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the time, and this actually reminds me of a conversation I just had last night. A lot of the time we think we're doing everything we can to invite God in, but what we're actually doing is just trying to control the situation, but we're not actually fully letting him into it. It's almost as if we're just clinging so tightly with a closed fist and we're like, okay, God, if you want to grab this, like get it out of my hand, you know, but to say, no, I want to open my fists and I want to give all of this, all the emotion, all the fear, all the anxiety to you into, like you said, the piano, I think using your gifts to worship and Mm. to be out in creation and to pray and to be in the word. But I, I also love what you said about calling people and having that community, because I think especially men feel that at least I do a lot of relationship marriage um, content and have a lot of conversations with couples and men are very, very, very stubborn a lot of the time when it comes to talking to counselors or talking to other men, but 
because you feel like a wet blanket or you feel like, Oh, I have, but then when you sit and talk with that person, you find, Oh wait, they're struggling very similarly and they haven't had anyone to talk to. And I think it just brings that freedom in the fellowship and the community that Jesus has given. I appreciate the thoughts because I feel a lot of the time, at least for myself, that I fall into this pit of, okay, nothing is working how I planned. Nothing looks how I expected it to look at this point. So God, where are you? And mm. the question really is, is where have I invited him? He's never left. And, and not to be cliche, but truly he's, he doesn't walk away, but I seek the world. I seek my control. I try to have my hands in and over everything. And then when I realize everything's crumbling, I'm like, oh, wait, God, can you help me out? It's I'm not abiding in him. And so I find as scripture promises, when we abide in him, the fruit of my life, including my joy, including my peace is so much more abundant. It's not always fixed. Sometimes I still cannot get out of bed, but it is much easier to live a faithful life for me when I'm being consistent with that faithful life, when I'm not just letting him in when I most need him. I would ask one thing, what would you say was most helpful to you during that time of depression? Were there things that your wife or your congregation did that really helped you to navigate this healthfully? Yeah, I do think, you know, having a few people, close, close people that walked with me through it and that met me where I was and spoke truth and love. I think I needed during that season, father figures. I meet with a group of guys every week and I was talking with them and we were talking about how most of the pivotal moments that we changed in our life for the better came from some healthy older man. And he may not have been perfect, but he just had a healthy enough mind and heart to speak truth and love, to challenge, to mentor, to advise, to counsel, and then to shift something in our mind and heart. And so during that season, there was a couple of really good father-like type of figures that spoke into me and challenged me and loved me and prayed for me. And then like my wife, of course, yeah, like a lot of healthy, great conversations, hard conversations that led to like getting out of those basements, crawling out of basement six and five and four and coming finally up to the first floor and realizing like, oh, I've not, I've been here physically, but I've not been here mentally. Like I've not been focused. I've been checked out or I've been distracted by these other thoughts of fear and anxiety. And I'm, I'm finally coming back into being present. Um, so it was healthy conversations like that. And then our church is so loving. I was telling our church this last week, they have been so kind in the journey of the loss of my dad, the transition of my mom stepping in for a season and then me stepping in. And obviously there's a small percentage that have been there through all of that. A lot of our church today has joined in the last five years since I've been pastor or seven or 10 years. And so, but there's that, that percentage of faithful people that have been there for like 30 years. They watched yeah. me they wow. change my diapers. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I went up to a couple of them this past week because I have a chapter where I talk about who's going to leave me next. And I had this fear of like, 
I'm not good enough for people to stay in my life very long. Like they might be here for a little bit, but eventually they're going to leave just like everybody else. And I went up to a couple of people that have been with me through all of it. And I just was like crying. I was like, thanks for not leaving. And they were like, why would we leave? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like there's always a reason for people to leave. And I was like, thanks for staying with me. And they were like, well, we're not just staying with you. We're staying with Victor. It's like, I know, but it feels like you're staying with me too. And they're like, yeah, of course. And there was just this good moment of healing. I was telling this one like faithful elderly woman, I was like, you know how much healing you've brought by just every Sunday coming up to me and saying, good job. And you're there. And I don't know. I think sometimes we underestimate our presence in someone's life could be healing. And Mm -hmm. for people watching out there, listening to your show, I think for the wife out there, the mom out there, for the dad out there, the husband, our presence in someone's life who is struggling emotionally, mentally, with depression, with anxiety, with fear, with trauma, all of it, just our presence and our faithful presence, even if our presence isn't always perfect, but our presence is there, Mm -hmm. I think is so healing and just showing up and being loved, being kind when we can and, and doing our best to help be a listening ear to people with compassion can bring so much healing. So such an eternal gift. I feel like we never grow tired of serving someone else or being generous to someone else. And I think that a lot of the time when we get so caught up in our own worlds and we're constantly looking in the mirror figuratively and literally that we become so lost in just us in ourselves. And we're not intending to be self-consumed and selfish, but when we are not utilizing, at least I find for myself, when I'm not utilizing my time and my gifts and my energy to love people well, I become self-consumed. And I find that I'm much more prone to depression, prone to anxiety. But those people, like you're talking about within the church who are showing up, they're still faithfully coming not only to you, but to the church. And they are a listening ear when we, people who struggle with depression, anxiety, feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just this wet blanket, or I'm just, it's so like miserable to be around me. And you believe all those lies, but they are continuing maybe selflessly. Maybe it's natural to them to love and to serve and to be that person. And that is an eternal gift. We don't ever, ever grow tired. Like it's statistically proven, but also just gives a gift, pay it forward to somebody in the Starbucks line. And you feel that, oh, this is joyful or I'm going to spend time and take a meal to a friend who's struggling. Oh, this is joy. But we get so caught up in in self that we lose that. And I find just in a practical sense for myself that when I'm abiding in the Lord, I am equally encouraged to serve and to love others more faithfully and to be less selfish. So, yeah, so I'm just very, I'm very thankful for you and for your story And what an incredible story, one of pain and hardship, but blessing and growth as well. And I would ask for you, Paul, when you think of the book, just in closing, what do you hope that your readers, if they gained one thing from mind games, what do you hope that they gain? Well, thanks for all those kind words you said. That's super encouraging. And I will just say this, you're an encourager and 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure the reason why so many people are listening and watching your show and following you is because you're an encourager. And for people that are watching out there, I think our world is so harsh. There's so many people out there discouraging, speaking words of criticism. And so a voice of encouragement is a breath of fresh air for all of us. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's my prayer for the book. I pray that the book is an encouragement to people. You're going to make it. You're going to get through this. This is not the end of the tunnel. There's light and there is another chapter and there's another page. Like keep moving forward and The book is really just encouraging people who might feel discouraged in life, mentally, emotionally, depleted, overwhelmed, feeling like throwing in the towel, maybe not throwing in the towel altogether on life, but throwing in the towel maybe on just dreams or the desire to ever be joyful or the feelings that things are going to get hopeful and better. Um, The book is just an encouragement that you will get through this by the grace of God, by the goodness of God, you're going to get through it. And that in the middle of it, you don't have to let those anxious thoughts and feelings of depression win the daily battle that you can win one day at a time. And then when you get on the other side of it and you have that victory and that testimony, it's going to be so much sweeter to be able to share with your kids, your family, your friends, like, hey, I walked through hell, but I came out on the other side stronger and more in love with God and more loved, like more whole on the, on the inside. And so that's my prayer. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah. Good word. And thank you. I'm so honored to have you and to be able to chat. And, um, I know that our listeners will feel so refreshed by, just the candidness. And so I just want to encourage you to encourage, encourage you to continue faithfully doing that and living it out. And we'll be praying for the success of your book and for our listeners. Again, it's mind games, winning the battle for your mental and emotional health by pastor Paul Darty. And I will link it in show notes. And as always, if you enjoy this conversation, if you feel like somebody that, you know, could benefit from hearing this truth of God and just honest conversation about depression or anxiety, please do share it with that one person, share it on social media. It of course encourages us to continue going on the podcast, but also you may help to change a life or to allow Jesus to speak into the hearts of others. So we love you guys. Thank you for being here. And we will talk to you next week. Bye, Paul. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.